BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. Join hosts and educator extraordinaires Michal Beton and Noam Weisman for the latest weekly podcast from Unpacked Wandering Jews as they tackle topics and uncomfortable questions about Israel, Judaism, and Zionism that surround them with the goal of working towards the answers together with their listeners. No matter where you're from, if you've ever wondered about anything, this is the podcast for you. Listen to Wandering Jews with Michal and Noam on your favorite podcast app today. Wandering Jews is brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Lessons from the world's top professors, anytime, any place. World history examined and science explained. This is One Day University. Welcome. You're listening to our final episode of The Happiness Formula. And I'm your host for the last time, Mike Coscarelli. Well, as they say, all good things must come to an end. And if you've made it this far, thank you. In this series, Dr. Barry Schwartz has taught us about happiness, grit, practical wisdom, how to be a good friend, how to listen as a parent, and what can make our work better. So we've got all this knowledge. What do we do with it? Barry's got some suggestions. When I introduced this idea of idea technology, I suggested that one of the things that claims we make about human beings can do is actually change the nature of the people that the claims are about. And conceivably, change them for the worse, not for the better. Even Adam Smith, and I've made Adam Smith the bad guy here, uh, and I'm giving a one-sided picture of him. He had lots of really interesting, important things to say about human beings that are just not part of my story. So he's not a bad guy. Uh, But he had this to say. Listen carefully. The man whose life is spent in a few simple operations, as in making pins in a pin factory, has no occasion to exert his understanding or to exercise his invention in finding out expedients for difficulties which never occur. He naturally loses, therefore, 
the habit of such exertion and generally becomes as stupid and ignorant as it is possible for a human creature to be. So, to translate that into contemporary English, if you are working repetitively, mechanically, and mindlessly over and over again, day after day, you lose the ability to figure out solutions to problems that might arise, and you become stupid. Now, here's the thing. You lose something that you used to have, and you become stupid rather than already being stupid. So in effect, what Smith is saying in this quote is, if you put people into a factory, you deprive them of the ability to solve problems that arise, and you make them dumb. People aren't naturally that way. Working in a pin factory makes them that way. And that's the point behind this idea of mine about idea technology. You think people only work for pay. You create workplaces that make them stupid. And having done that, you've turned them into creatures that only work for pay. When I talk about the Army's concern that its field commanders were losing, had lost the ability to improvise, the reason they seem to have lost the ability to improvise is that basically in the part of their job where they were training new soldiers, instead of using their ingenuity, discretion, and creativity to figure out how to train new soldiers, they simply went by a script. And in that, that process, lost the ability to improvise and became stupid when uh, lives were on the line in actual combat situations. So this is what Smith is saying. What is it that people had before entering the factory that they lost when they started working in the factory? And what is it that they were before entering the factory that was different from what they became? Right here in this quote from Smith, we see evidence that Adam Smith believed that what people were like as workers would depend in part on the conditions of their work. And yet, over the years, this nuanced understanding of human nature as the product of the human environment got lost. And as a result of this lost subtlety, creating the soulless, dehumanizing workplaces that most people faced didn't need any justification except for economic efficiency. The thought was that it wasn't changing people. It wasn't depriving people of anything. It was simply taking people as they were and using their labor with maximum efficiency. But my point is that ideas do change people. And our pressing questions are, how can idea technology take root even when the ideas are false? If you think that people lack the motivation to do good work, you structure the workplace so that the work requires little judgment, little discretion, and is closely supervised. 
and you engineer an incentive scheme that makes sure that people will want to work hard. As a consequence, people never get the opportunity to become engaged by their work and committed to doing it well. Your lack of faith in the motives of the people you oversee is then vindicated. See, I told you, if we don't create a good incentive system, people won't work hard. There are other examples of ideology in action uh, in psychology that I'm going to discuss with you briefly just to give you more of a sense of what this dynamic is that I'm talking about. Let's think about how we think about human intelligence. One possibility is that how smart we are is fixed largely by our genes. Some people are born smart, some people are born brilliant, some people are born dumb. As you probably know, there is some evidence and much belief that individual differences in intelligence are innate and unmodifiable. You can teach uh, not very bright people a lot of stuff, but you're not going to make them brighter. Some people win the genetic lottery and some people lose it. So is this true? Well, it turns out it's a hard question to answer. Consider the work of a well-known psychologist named Carol Dweck. What Dweck has discovered is that some children have what she calls performance goals. These kids want to do well on tests. They want approval. They want gold stars. They want pats on the head. Other kids have what she calls mastery goals. They want to encounter things that they can't do and learn how to do them from their failures. Kids with mastery goals want challenges. Failure is an opportunity to learn. Kids with performance goals don't want challenges. Failure is just failure, and what they want is success and approval. Performance-oriented kids, as Dweck puts it, want to prove their ability, while mastery-oriented kids want to improve their ability. Now, children who have performance goals avoid challenges. Children who have mastery goals seek challenges. Children with performance goals respond to failure by giving up. Children with mastery goals respond to failure by working harder. What does this mean? It means that children with mastery goals learn more and get smarter than children with performance goals. Right? If you have mastery goals, you seek challenges, and that makes you better at whatever it is you're trying to master. If you have performance goals, you avoid challenges, and that keeps you as good as you were, and that could be good or not so good, but there's no opportunity to improve. What Dweck has shown lies beneath these two orientations is two quite different conceptions that children have of the nature of intelligence. Some children believe that intelligence is essentially immutable, 
it's the genetic lottery, although they don't necessarily know anything about genes. Children who think intelligence is fixed, intelligence is immutable, are the ones who tend to be performance-oriented. If I can't get smarter, why risk embarrassing myself with a failure? What's the point of seeking challenges and risking failure if you can't get smarter? Other children, in contrast, believe that intelligence is not a fixed quantity, that people can get smarter. And these children tend to be mastery-oriented, seeking to do in their schoolwork what they believe is possible for everyone. So, is intelligence fixed? The answer, in part, depends on whether you believe it's fixed. If you believe intelligence is fixed, you avoid the challenges that might make you smarter. If you believe intelligence is not fixed, you seek the challenges that will make you smarter. Thus, a false idea about the nature of intelligence, that intelligence is fixed, can lead people to behave in the world in ways that makes that false idea true. And that's another example of what I mean when I talk about ideology or idea technology. And this is exactly the dynamic that I think occurred in the evolution of the modern workplace. Adam Smith thought people are lazy. To get them to do something, you got to make it worth their while. You got to pay them. You create a factory system built for people who are lazy, where the engine that produces activity is nothing but the pay at the end of the week, and where the activity itself is soul-deadening and mindless. And you sure enough manage to create people for whom the only reason to show up for work is the paycheck that comes at the end of the week. Not because it's something essential about how people are, but rather because you've created an environment in which people really can't be any other way. There is no earthly reason to do the work that's available to you except for the paycheck. Remember again, Smith said, the man whose life is spent in performing a few simple operations has no occasion to exert his understanding or to exercise his invention. He generally becomes as stupid and ignorant as it is possible for a human creature to become. Here he is describing how work in a factory that's organized in a particular kind of way how that affects the nature of the people who have to work in that factory. And an anthropologist named Marshall Salins, in talking about this sort of process, said, thus does the economy produce not only objects, that is goods, for appropriate subjects, but also subjects for appropriate objects. In other words, the economy, the economic system within which we operate, changes us and turns us into just the kinds of creatures that will be able to survive in the industrial system that we've created. And the more that institutions like this dominate society, 
the more it will seem obviously true that the only reason people do anything is for the carrot that is being dangled at the end of the task. You won't find doctors who care about health outcomes if you create medical settings where they're focused on how much they earn. You won't find teachers who care about exciting young minds if you create classrooms where the only reason for showing up every day is the paycheck that comes at the end of the week. Everywhere you look, you will see people engaged in activities for pay and for no other reason. And you will conclude that incentives are the magic that runs the world. It's time for one last break. When we come back, how to head for higher ground. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So, buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. I'll begin the wrap-up with a, a folktale. A scorpion wants to cross the river, 
but it can't swim. So he goes up to a frog who can swim and asks for a ride. The frog says, if I give you a ride on my back, you'll go and sting me. The scorpion replies, it wouldn't be in my interest to sting you. Since, as I'll be on your back, if I sting you, we both drown. The frog thinks about this for a while and accepts the deal. Seems reasonable. It takes the scorpion on its back. It braves the waters. But halfway across, it feels a burning pain in its side. And it realizes the scorpion has stung it after all. As they both sink beneath the waves, the frog cries out, Why did you sting me, Mr. Scorpion? For now we will both drown. The scorpion replies, I can't help it. It's in my nature. The thing is, human beings are not scorpions. People are not stuck being one way or another. Uh, as anthropologist Clifford Geertz observed, human beings are unfinished animals. But nor are we free to invent ourselves without constraint. What we can reasonably expect of people depends on how our social institutions finish them. When we give shape to our social institutions, to our schools, our communities, and of course our workplaces, we are shaping human nature. Thus human nature is to a significant degree the product of human design. If we design workplaces that permit people to do work that they value, we will be designing a human nature that values work. If we design workplaces that permit people to find meaning in their work, we will be designing a human nature that values work. Now, why should we design such workplaces? First, good workplaces enable people to do good work. Their customers and clients benefit, and so do their employers. And second, when people are able to do work they value, it makes them happy. It enhances their well-being. Much more than the material benefits from the incentive schemes that employers substitute for good work. Why wouldn't we want to design a workplace that enables its inhabitants to get real satisfaction out of the time they spend there? We've missed this opportunity thus far in our history, partly because of the ideology that tells us that people don't want to work. It places a great burden on us when we appreciate that by designing our institutions, we are also designing ourselves, the people who inhabit those institutions, at least in part. But I think this is a responsibility that we must all accept. And the first step to taking responsibility over the structure of our workplace is to start asking questions. When it comes to the design of work, we must ask why. What is the purpose of this work? Will the purpose of the work inspire people to do the jobs well? We must ask what? Is the product of our work something that will actually provide a benefit? 
are the results of our transactions with customers positive sum so that both sides to the transaction will be better off. It will be much easier to inspire our workforce if the answer to this question is yes. And we must ask how. Are we giving workers the freedom to use their intelligence and discretion to help solve the problems that they face every workday? Are we allowing them to work without close supervision and trusting that since they want to do their jobs well, they will do their jobs well? The world of work and the world of human experience will be a very different place if we ask ourselves these questions about the work that we do and the work that we ask other people to do. And human nature will be different too. We will enable the people who work for us and work with us to live richer lives and everyone will benefit. I'll close with a quote from uh, my favorite rock singer, Bruce Springsteen. This comes from an interview he did years ago with the magazine Rolling Stone. And here's what he says. I understand that it's the music that keeps me alive. That's my lifeblood. And to give that up for like the TV, the cars, the houses, that's not the American dream. That's the booby prize in the end. Those are the booby prizes. And if you fall for them, if when you achieve them, you believe that this is the end in and of itself, then you've been suckered in because those are the consolation prizes if you're not careful for selling yourself out or letting the best of yourself slip away. So you got to be vigilant. You got to carry the idea you began with further and you got to hope that you're headed for higher ground. And I hope that we are all collectively and in partnership headed for higher ground. That's it. Dr. Barry Schwartz has taken us on a remarkable journey exploring happiness practical wisdom, and what makes us feel valued at work. And now we're setting you free to go out and change the world using what you've learned. Okay, maybe not the world, but you can change something, right? I sure hope you do. I'm Mike Coscarelli, and I got to say, it has been a pleasure to be here with you. The Happiness Formula from One Day University is a production of iHeart Podcasts and School of Humans. If you've enjoyed the show, leave a review in your favorite podcast app and check out the Curiosity Audio Network for podcasts covering history, pop culture, true crime, and more. School of Humans. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. 